What I want to uh, start with uh, today is by um, considering some uh, metaphors, uh, parables that we find. What I'm interested in is uh, the power of metaphor or parable itself. And we find um, in many of the uh, teachings uh, uh, of the Buddha, but also, of course, in many traditions, the use of uh, parable. In other words, telling a short story or using an image as a way of uh, communicating what is meant by a particular teaching or idea. Some scholars, and again not only in Buddhism but also in Christianity, suggest that the uh, teachings which are most likely to go back to the earliest uh, period of, let's say, Jesus or, or, or the Buddha, uh, are parables. We're no doubt very familiar in the Gospels, for example, of how Jesus um, frequently speaks in parables. The prodigal son, or the vineyard, um, and so forth and so on. And we find, likewise, um, in the early Buddhist uh, teachings, uh, a similar emphasis on, on parable. Now this is often in striking uh, contrast to what we find as the traditions develop into what we might call um, orthodoxies, um, religious systems of belief, uh, doctrines. It almost seems uh, a pattern that as a tradition um, becomes more institutionalized, becomes more established, the language it uses tends to become more concerned with uh, rational explanation rather than appealing to the power of myth, the power of parable, the power of metaphor. So very often when we read a book on Buddhism, for example, we find ourselves presented with um, ideas, uh, concepts. Of course, these are to be put into practice, but even so, very often in the text on meditation, the language slips into the language of technique, and so you get explanations of how to meditate, sometimes with lots of steps, uh, lists, um, the idea that meditation goes through a sequence of, of stages. It's all laid out in a very schematic and rather technical way. And so people very often... Uh, speak of meditation as though it's a kind of technique, a technique that once we gain uh, proficiency in it, we'll be able to solve the problems of our lives. And in speaking in this way, there's often a, a, an unawareness or a forgetting that this is the language of technology. Technology is such a powerful um, metaphor of our time that we often don't notice when that kind of language uh, slips into the language of spirituality or religion or, 
or philosophy. It seems quite natural to us. But again, when we go back to the earliest um, sources that we have in the Buddhist tradition, we just don't find that kind of technical language. In fact, we find um, more and more a language which is calling upon uh, not uh, reason, but um, imagination. And this is, I think, where the power of parable and the power of metaphor lie. It is in their ability to um, evoke or stimulate the imagination. I'm going to give you an example and then I'll explain. This is the parable the Buddha uses um, concerning the snake. And this is how the text goes. Suppose a person needed a snake and was seeking a snake and he wandered off in search of a snake and then he saw a large snake and grasped it by its coils or its body or by its tail. The snake would turn back on him and bite his arm or one of his limbs. And because of that, the man would die or would come to great suffering. And why is that? Because of the person's wrong grasp of the snake. So that's the parable. That's the story. Um, There's no attempt here to give a reasoned description of anything. There's no doctrine. But instead, there is uh, the evocation of an experience that most people would be familiar with. Because all of us, and this would be particularly true in a largely rural society such as that of ancient India, all people would be familiar with snakes. And when the teaching is presented in this sort of language, the, uh, the ideas immediately evoke um, everyday experience. And in this case, the everyday experience of having to deal with snakes. Now, all of us will probably have a very... Um, Uh, 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 personal association with the image of a snake or let's say with the actual dealing with snakes. Snakes may strike us as something extremely fearful. For others, a snake might be an object or a creature of extraordinary beauty. However the image is presented to us, it will trigger uh, a series of images, very often, particularly in the case of a snake, images that respond uh, in a very visceral way, in a very bodily way. This is a long distance from um, trying to explain things in terms of some doctrine or some philosophy. The Buddha is addressing a very primal experience, the snake. So what does the snake stand for? Why, Why is he using this language? 
And he goes on to explain. He says, so here too some people learn the Dhamma. But having learned the Dhamma, they do not examine, examine the meaning of its teachings with intelligence or wisdom. They do not arrive at a considered understanding of them. Instead, they learn the Dhamma only for the sake of criticizing others and winning in debates. And they do not experience the good for the sake of which they learned the Dhamma. Therefore, these teachings, being grasped by them in such a way, conduce to their harm and suffering for a long time. So in other words, uh, the Buddha is comparing his teaching to a snake. And this, I think, refers to pretty much everything that, um, that he teaches. The way, for example, he teaches meditation. The way he explains the, um, the, nat- na- the nature of the human mind the way he describes the path to enlightenment. These are all the teachings of the Dhamma. But in and of themselves, uh, these things um, or these teachings are neither intrinsically uh, worthwhile nor harmful. The the, the challenge of, the, uh, of each person is to, um, is to apprehend them, to understand them, and to incorporate them into his or her life. And therefore, the challenge or the task is or comes down to the way in which we actually accept or understand or take hold of these teachings in a way that they um, lead to something living, uh, something vital, in contrast to taking them or taking hold of them in a way that leads as it says in the image of the snake, uh, to death. So in other words, uh, the practices that we'll be doing uh, this week, the ideas that we'll be exploring, um, are only meaningful to us in terms of how we apprehend them or grasp them. There's nothing intrinsically valuable about the teaching itself. It's our, it's our relationship to it that makes it effective or not. In other words, we can use these ideas as a way to, um, to freedom, to liberation, to what I would consider to be um, a life that is uh, flourishing, that is rich, or we can take the very same ideas and doctrines and so forth and turn them into something that's actually deadening. We can see in this um, metaphor, this parable, quite clearly that we're talking about uh, issues of life and death. And a snake is something which, in, at least for me, is a very powerful image of life. I always um, 
find myself uh, in awe um, when I do encounter a snake. A snake, though, of course, is um, a very uh, uh, fearful thing as well. Because as much as I may be fascinated by um, the way it moves, um, I'm also wary and slightly frightened of the harm it may cause. So why does the Buddha compare his teaching to a snake? I think he's both pointing to how these teachings are um, very vital and perhaps very powerful, but also how these very same things uh, can be rather dangerous. If we if, we, if, if the way we apprehend them um, is of a certain way, then they may start to have the opposite effect to what they were intended. Now for me, this comes down very much to whether we see the Dhamma as um, uh, a set of, um, uh, of suggestions, um, of injunctions, um, of uh, proposals, as it were, to live a certain way that we then try to put into practice. Or whether we take uh, the Dhamma uh, to be some sort of system of belief. And we have the choice, you know, we have the freedom uh, to take it in either way. I've seen in myself, and I guess in my engagements with Buddhism over the years, how um, these ideas uh, can turn into something rather deadening one can become rather attached to uh, a particular doctrine. One can become rather attached to one's identity as a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim or whatever it might be. One can use these ideas as a means to reinforce one's own sense of self one can um, start to gain a sense of superiority over others because of a conviction that what you believe is true and that what your practice is doing is um, the only effective way to, let's say, achieve awakening. And again, I'm not suggesting that we do this in, or people do this in some deliberate manner. It's almost as though um, the ideas themselves have a certain attractive power that subtly feed in to the mechanisms and the habits of our own attachments and fears and desires, and so on. And they begin to reinforce the very things that, um, in fact, they were designed to overcome. As some of you might have come across this same uh, metaphor of the snake in the teachings of um, a second century AD Buddhist uh, philosopher called Nagarjuna. I mean, the word Nagarjuna, coincidentally, uh, actually has the word snake in it, Naga, Nag. Uh, in Sanskrit, means snake. 
For Nagarjuna, he uses the same image and he says that um, the idea of emptiness, which is a very well-known Buddhist notion, he, he says it's like a snake. If you misapprehend emptiness, um, it will have the opposite effect to which it was in, for which it was intended. Emptiness is meant to liberate the mind from attachments and a grasping at self. And yet, if you misunderstand it, then it can actually reinforce this grasping at self um, in a way that contradicts what the whole idea was about. In other words, you can become, um, let's say, uh, convinced that you have a deep understanding of emptiness and this is something that gives you uh, a reinforcement of your own wisdom or your own importance or whatever. You can turn it into uh, a doctrine that you believe to be the highest teaching of the Buddha and you have got it right, you understand it. And yet that's precisely the kind of of attitude that the idea of emptiness is meant to see through, is meant to overcome. So I think what we see here in this metaphor is one of the primary, um, uh, in a sense, uh, tensions Uh, within Buddhist teaching, which is also expressed in another polarity, uh, that between the Buddha, or what we might understand simply as awakening, being awake, in contrast to the figure of Mara. Mara is the Buddhist equivalent of the devil, basically. Mara means uh, the killer. And Mara appears in the uh, early texts as a kind of demonic figure who uh, suddenly approaches the Buddha uh, and the two of them then get engaged in some conversation about one thing or another. But the point is uh, that Mara... Uh, is in a sense the Buddha's shadow. That Mara is that which, uh, rather than uh, lets go uh, or opens up our experience, becomes that which closes it down. And that's why Mara is often uh, understood as uh, a kind of death, Mara is, in fact, um, often presented as Yama, which means the god of death itself. In other words, physical death. But in terms of our practice, Mara refers to everything in our experience uh, that prevents us from living fully. And the classic examples would be um, greed, uh, hatred, Uh, confusion, uh, self-centeredness, egotism, jealousy, pride, all of these things, which have the effect of, um, of freezing us, of somehow locking us into a fixed view of ourselves vis-a-vis another or the world in which um, our life somehow comes to a stop. Now we experience this in meditation quite a lot. When we're practicing uh, mindfulness, when we're sitting here on the cushion watching our breath, by focusing on the breath, we're not just using the breath as just an object um, that happens to be available 
for us to concentrate on. But the breath um, is, of course, the very uh, source of our own life. When we're breathing, we're alive. So to, to, to ground ourselves in the breath is to ground ourselves in the very pulse of our own existence, of our own uh, being conscious, being sensitive, being alert, being aware. All of that is possible because we're breathing. Now you may notice that as soon as you turn uh, your attention onto the breath and you become uh, self-consciously breathing, very often that has the effect of uh, constricting the natural flow of the breath. It's as though as soon as you become aware of it, you have the sense that you're the breather. The, the breath does not flow um, as naturally as when you're not aware of it. Become conscious of it, and it seems sometimes almost as though you put a brake on it. It doesn't have that effortless uh, flow that is happening when you're not conscious of it. We also notice um, that we may be settled very uh, calmly and very clearly on the rhythm of the breath, of the sensations in the body, of what's going on around us in the room. Um, and everything seems to be, as it were, opening up uh, into a sort of rhythm and a flow that's quite unimpeded. And then suddenly, we find ourselves uh, taken away by, let's say, an anxiety or a worry or something we forgot to do before we left home or we're taken over by some fantasy or daydream. Now, very often what is um, characteristic of these, uh, of these distractions uh, is a kind of narrowing of the attention. Uh, very often, uh, these thoughts that distract us uh, go round and round in circles. They become very repetitive, uh, rather compulsive. They don't seem to be able to get out of that rut in which they're stuck. And rather than our meditation being one that seems to be opening us up to experience and making us more and more uh, sensitized uh, to what's going on within us and around us um, in a kind of a flow, a flow that in a way just leads into an unknown, which is the next moment and the one after that, we find ourselves closing down uh, either around an image or an idea or an emotion or a fear or a desire. And at that moment, this would be considered to be the, uh, the grasp um, of Mara, that something deadening uh, has got into the practice. Now, at some level, we might still be doing our meditation quite correctly, according to the book. We may, we may still be, sort of, have a background awareness of our breath. We're sitting in a good posture. If someone were to come into the room and look at us sitting here, they'd have the impression that we were doing something very deep and profound. But in fact... We're snarled up and caught up uh, in a fixated thought or idea. Or in fact, we might not even be terribly conscious at all. 
We might have drifted off into a sort of la-la land in which um, we've more or less lost contact with the body and the breath and being in this room. We're off somewhere else. So this is an example, as it were, of the, um, uh, of the force of Mara, the force of death, um, having taken over. And it might, it might be sud- suddenly that um, there's a loud noise, let's say, in the room, uh, or we just sort of come to, we wake up, and then we find ourselves back here in this room. Uh, back here in this body, uh, back here with this breath. And sometimes we have no recollection even of where we've been. It's as though we've been taken away somewhere. We've been um, uh, distracted to the point of forget of total forgetfulness. And remember that mindfulness has... Uh, as its root meaning in Pali and Sanskrit, the idea of remembering, recollection, that we remember to be here, we we, we remember to be aware, and yet so easily the power of forgetfulness takes us away. So it's in experiences such such as this that we um, get a more direct or immediate sense of the uh, tension between our capacity to be um, aware, to be present, to be awake, which symbolically we can think of as being like the Buddha, the awake one. And on the other hand, Uh, the tendency to um, lose touch with that capacity, perhaps even out of a certain um, fear even uh, of, of, of getting that close and that intimate with our experience. And we shift off into a kind of closed down, repetitive, um, semi-conscious state of, of holding or grasping. So in this sense, <clears throat> again, the, um, uh, the, we can see how, because of the way that we're dealing with or relating to uh, these, exper- these practices or these ideas, uh, turns what we're doing into something that's actually quite the opposite of what it is that we've set out uh, to try and achieve. You know, we, we, started the, the pre, we started the session of meditation with the intention to be alert, to be present, to be mindful and awake, and yet something else took over. And we find that, in fact, that's not what we've been doing. So all of this, I think, has to do with the ways in which we relate to the snake. Do we apprehend it in a way or do we uh, hold it such that uh, it uh, gives us more strength, uh, gives us more uh, presence of mind, or are we, in a way, using it or practicing it um, in a way that it takes us away from that um, presence and openness and slips us back into a kind of closure. Let, let, let's go on to another, another parable. This is the parable of the raft. And as we'll see, it touches on many of the same ideas. (coughs) 
So this is the Buddha speaking. Suppose, monks, a man in the course of a journey came to a great expanse of water whose near shore was dangerous and fearful and whose far shore was safe and free from fear. But there was no ferry boat or bridge going across to the far shore. So then the man thought, well, suppose I collect some grasses and twigs and some branches and leaves and bind them together as a raft. And supported by the raft and making an effort with my hands and feet I got safely across to the far shore. And having arrived at the far shore, the man might think, well, this raft has been very helpful to me. Suppose I were to hoist it on my head or load it onto my shoulder and then go wherever I want. Now, monks, what do you think? By doing so, Would that man be doing what should be done with a raft? No, venerable sir, say the monks. By doing what would that man be doing what should be done with a raft? Having arrived at the far shore, he might think, this raft has been very helpful for me. Suppose I were to haul it onto the dry land or set it adrift in the water and then go wherever I want. Now, monks, it is by so doing that the man would be, would be doing what should be done with that raft. In the same way, I have shown you how the Dhamma is similar to a raft, being for the purpose of crossing over, not for the purpose of grasping. Now this is a fairly famous um, uh, story, many of which I'm, uh, many of you I'm sure um, have heard this. But once again, the Buddha is using a parable. He's using a metaphor. He's appealing to something within our experience uh, that all of us are familiar with. Whether, whether or not we may actually have made rafts or not doesn't really matter. The point is that we have sufficient familiarity with raft making. We have sufficient familiarity with going on to a journey uh, and coming to an obstacle. Coming, in this case, to a riverbank. And there's no bridge. And there's no boat. And we're stuck. Now this, of course, also... um, Mirrors what we were talking about just now between uh, the process of a path which opens up before us, in which we're able to move freely, in which we find ourselves in a flow, as opposed to those moments in our, in our practice where suddenly we find ourselves stuck. And as I mentioned earlier, that sense of being stuck or blocked is what is called Mara, the demonic. So here we have a very similar um, way of looking at the same experience. But here, rather than comparing his Dharma to a snake with its attendant promises and dangers, here he compares uh, the Dharma to a raft. Now, let's just reflect for a moment on uh, the nature of rafts. 
I think the first point to make is that a raft is something we put together um, in order to respond to um, a situation of urgency and crisis. We don't put a raft together as something which we will then treasure and um, possess for years to come. A raft is a temporary expedient. And I think the image that the Buddha uses is, is very clear about that. When he says, suppose I collect together grass, twigs, branches and leaves and bind them together with a raft, as a raft, and supported by that raft and making an effort with my hands and feet, I get safely across to the other shore. In other words, when we find ourselves in a situation where um, we have to basically improvise in order to uh, resolve a particular problem, we make use of what is to hand in the same way that the person on the riverbank will just look around and find whatever is available um, uh, in that situation that can serve as um, a material that he can put together and bind together and then get across the river. The only thing that matters is whether these materials float. That's all that matters. Do they float? It doesn't matter if this raft is particularly, you know, soundly constructed. It only has to be sufficiently well constructed to get us across the river. That's all it has to do. Now, in a similar way, um, whether this be in the course of our lives or whether it be in the course of a meditation retreat, we find ourselves sometimes at a kind of a, an impasse. Uh, we, we find ourselves stuck. We don't seem to be making um, any movement forward. Remember that the whole parable is presented in terms of a person who has set out on a journey which, of course, implies um, a process of a path that we're setting out into an unknown. Uh, We're no longer just concerned with repeating the same things that we've always done our whole lives, whether those be the same thoughts or the same feelings or the same behaviours. But we've decided to break out of that realm of what is familiar and comfortable and set out on a journey. Again, this is a very mythic way of speaking. Um, We're we're, we're setting out on a quest. Uh, We're setting out on a path. And the very nature of such a quest or a path is that um, we're stepping out into an unknown. We're letting go of what's familiar and embarking on a journey. And yet as we proceed on that journey, we are liable to encounter situations that we were unable to foresee or prepare ourselves adequately for. And it's at those moments where we have to improvise. So it may be that at a certain critical situation, we have to simply make use of whatever we know, whatever we can um, manage to find around us that will help us get across. 
And I think this points to the fact that the Dharma, or the Buddha's teaching, um, is not something uh, that has all of the answers to all of life's problems um, built into it. That all we have to do if we are a good Buddhist is to uh, find whatever tools are um, there in the teaching somehow to enable us to get over that particular problem. It may be that there aren't the adequate tools. That we have to draw upon other sources that are not necessarily Buddhist. The only thing that matters in such situations um, are, do these things float? Can we use them to build a raft? We may draw upon some skill in psychotherapy, for example. We might draw upon some philosophical tradition that's not Buddhist. We might draw upon some practice from yoga. It doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is, does it float? Can it be used to get us across this particular obstacle that's facing us now? But the danger, of course, is that if it does float, if it does allow us to get across that hurdle, then we're very much, uh, or it's very likely, that we'll then become rather attached to it. And that rather than just leaving it on the river or bringing it onto dry land, we'll as this metaphor suggests, hoist it onto our head or load it onto our shoulder. In other words, something which was just a temporary expedient becomes something that we're not willing to let go of anymore. It becomes something we've got rather identified with and attached to. I mean, this might be simply something in the course of um, uh, you know, a practice of many years, let's say, where we start out with a form of meditation or practice that was very, very helpful in a particular tradition. But at a certain point, it no longer is perhaps necessary. It's achieved its purpose. It's been very valuable. We can put it down. And we can continue without having to carry the burden of that particular belief or that particular exercise. We can move on. What's striking about the um, parable um, is that it's describing a process where a person is in the course of a journey, crosses a particular obstacle gets to the other shore, and then continues to go further. And very likely, in the course of that further journey, the person will come to another obstacle, another body of water, and will have to make another raft. Sometimes this parable is explained in terms of getting from the near shore of Sangsara to the far shore of Nirvana, in other words, uh, a metaphor for the entire path, really, getting to some final goal. But that's not what this text says. In fact, it says very clearly that um, this raft has been very helpful to me. Suppose I haul it onto dry land or set adrift in the water and then go wherever I want. It's not, not, not as though the far shore is the end of the journey. It's just a step. It's just a phase. And so the moral that the Buddha draws from this is that the Dhamma, the practice we're doing, is like a raft. It's for the purpose of crossing over a certain obstacle. It's not, as he says, for the purpose of holding on to or grasping. So once again, we come back to exactly the same image that we found 
in the metaphor of the snake. Um, the problem lies in the grasping. If we hold on to the snake too tightly, for example, it's likely to swing back and bite us. If we become too attached and hold on to this raft by loading it onto our shoulders, instead of being an expedient, it will become a burden. It will become something that weighs us down. It will become something quite unnecessary. So in both of these um, images, we come back to this idea of, of how are we relating to these ideas and practices? What's our relationship to them? How can we use these exercises or these ideas in a way that is, uh, is useful and beneficial, that gets us across bodies of water, rather than becoming attached to them, identified with them, in such a way that they uh, have the opposite effect to the one that was intended. So that's, um, uh, that's what, um, <clears throat> all I want to say today. Uh, we'll have uh, an opportunity this afternoon for uh, questions and comments and opening this up into a discussion. And tomorrow I'm going to explore another metaphor, uh, the metaphor of uh, the ancient city in the forest. So we'll stay with metaphors for a couple of days, at least. Now before we end, um, I'd like to say a few things about uh, walking meditation. Fortunately, the weather is complying, and it's more or less sunny and dry. But um, as we mentioned last night, the, the formal meditation we'll be doing will be sitting, as we've already um, explained to some degree and tried out, but also walking. Preferably walking outside, um, simply because it's, you know, there's more space, there's more, uh, it's more agreeable really. But if you, if you prefer, there's a, a room right there next door, which is a walking room. You can walk there. In any case, walking meditation is uh, just as much a practice as sitting meditation. Um, it's tempting sometimes to think that walking meditation is like uh, time out. It's somehow not the real thing. That the real practice is here, sitting cross-legged on the floor or on a chair. But I think it's very important that um, we don't identify any particular posture as being uh, somehow the best one. Um, that walking is no different in terms of providing an opportunity for, for concentration, for uh, mindfulness, than is sitting. So we'll be spending the next 45 minutes uh, walking outside. Those of you who are not familiar with this practice, um, this is what I'd suggest. Is you and I'll demonstrate this. Um, try to find a a piece of ground about five or ten yards long, and uh, start just by standing for a few moments, uh, becoming aware of the sensation of your contact with the ground. 
aware of the body standing. And then place your attention with your eyes about six, about two yards, about six feet in front of you. And then when you feel somehow balanced, then slowly, but not too slowly, just walking along your chosen little trail until you get to the point that you've designated as the end. Let's say here. It could be a bit longer if you prefer. It doesn't really matter. And as you walk, focusing your attention on the movement of the body itself, the rhythm of that movement, and you might find it particularly helpful to focus on the contact of the feet with the ground, the raising, the moving, and the placing of each foot. So instead of the breath, which is also a rhythm of the body, you tune in to this rhythm of walking. Now, of course, when you're doing walking meditation, there's a lot more going on. You see a lot more. You're probably going, if you're outside, you'll hear a lot more. And, of course, you're also doing something that is is rather more deliberate. You can't help breathing, but you're quite free to walk or not walk. But as you get into a pace, as you know from everyday experience, you don't actually have to think about the walking at all. It just becomes the way that you are moving, living, in those moments. But what's important is to find a way of being focused and attentive with the movement of the body, the legs, the hips, the shoulders, the whole uh, complex of sensations involved in just the same way that you're aware of the sensations of your breathing. So that all you're really doing is shifting your focus to another set of sensations, which we call walking. Now if, for example, you find yourself getting very distracted, or you're kind of you can't really quite connect to this. Then, when you get to the end of your little track, just stand still. And you may want to close your eyes, return to your breath, stabilize your attention once again, become aware of what's going on within your body, your mind, and the environment around you. And then once you've got that steadiness and stillness again, you continue to walk. So you might want to alternate between actually walking, maybe sometimes standing. You might want to take a few minutes out sitting on a bench. But try not to lose the continuity of attention. That's really the key. All of these exercises are ways of training ourselves to be more attentive, to be less all over the place, less caught up in compulsive thoughts and fantasies and so on.
Is that clear? If, for those of you who haven't done this sort of thing before. It might seem a little contrived and artificial if you're just starting it, this walking practice. But as you get into it, you'll find the right rhythm, the right pace that suits you. Thank you. So we'll meet again at um, quarter to twelve and we'll have another sitting before lunch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.